Lord, thank you that we can gather this way and look to grow in grace and knowledge and depth of insight as we study the confession and connect it to the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, you'll help us do that today. In Christ's name, amen. So, um, last time we were together, we were in chapter 21, and we're kind of wrapping that chapter up, and we're getting into chapter 22 of the confession. Um, last time, as I was wrapping things up, it was suggested maybe we should spend a little bit more time on uh, chapter 21. So I'd like to look at cha- uh, paragraph 8, and if we get through that today, then we'll get into chapter 22. So it reads, This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord, when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So I want to just kind of step back from the statement for a, mo- a moment and just think with you a little bit about what, what you do to uh, make something special. In other words, if you have like a special day, you know, what are the, you know, or a special event, uh, how do you go about kind of making it seem special? Any thoughts? This is just in general. I'm not talking about specifically the Sabbath day. Well, there's preparation. There's preparation. There's things that go on ahead of time to get you ready for it. Okay. Inviting people. Yeah, inviting people. You want to make certain that the right people that you want to celebrate it with is for, you know, whatever you're celebrating. Announce it to the public. I'm sorry. Announce it to the public. Announce it. Yep. You say, hey, this is happening. Good food. Yeah, you want to make sure you got that. I'm all for that. <laughs> Decorations. Decorations. Decorations, yeah. So there are things kind of festooned about, kind of to say this is a not a normal kind of every time, you know, sort of experience in our living room. <laughs> There's a bunch of stuff hanging up there. Let me, also, let me make a suggestion that I think is kind of getting at this, is set the time apart. In other words, you just don't like stumble into it. It's a set thing. You say, and so you put some boundaries around it. And then you often have special things you only use for that. Like, you know, sometimes you'll have like special china. Ooh, we're using the special china. You know, that's, must be, what, what's happening? <laughs> you know, sometimes you just ran out of the other stuff. But the, you know, the special china is for the special day. So there are these things that we do just all the time to set things apart. Now, I think we're getting, we're, we're getting less and less sort of um, in that, you know, we, we don't follow that mode like we used to. You know, for example, uh, Marla's uh, family, her extended family, were kind of New England Brahmin. So a, New, a Brahmin, a New England Brahmin, it's like kind of the elite, the upper class. They would dress up for dinner every night. Suit and tie. So I remember, uh, you know, going over to the house uh, for different events, 
And, you know, he just was always in a suit. <laughs> it's like, do, do, do you like, have anything else? Probably not. <laughs> but, but there was still kind of like a special sort of preparing for just even an evening meal. I remember the first time I met him, I met Uncle Ralph. So I, I drove a truck because I was a, you know, I was a, uh, a carpenter and, um, you know, built, I was a framer, that kind of thing. So we drive up to the house and he comes running out. So this is a guy who is who's who in intellectuals in the world. It's published by Oxford. You know, so this is like super elite guy. But he comes and he opens the door for my wife. You know, and they hadn't seen each other for you know, a few years. Hugs and everything. And, and Marla introduces me to him. And as we're walking to the house, he says, Oh, you drive a truck. How interesting. <laughs> I got the message. This is not something you do. In other words, everything about kind of their way of life had a, had a kind of uh, decorum. There was something, there was time for this, a time for that, time for this other thing. And then there were times that were set apart that were more special, you know, than other times. The, and I think when we think about the Sabbath, um, we kind of have to get back into that frame of mind that there are these times set up apart for something. This is a special day for a special thing. It's not like any other day. And I think we've gotten away from that, just broadly speaking, in our culture. Um, obviously, there aren't many people like Marla's aunt and uncle anymore, you know, getting dressed up for dinner every night. <laughs> uh, any thoughts about that? I mean, it even comes down to like how our homes are built. Like we have open floor plans now. So back in the old days, you just you weren't supposed to see the kitchen. That was like out of view. That's where blood and guts and different things are being done that are not for polite company. So you'd be in another room in the parlor, very stiff. I remember this stuff. Do you remember this stuff? Maybe I'm just old. <laughs> but I remember this stuff as a kid. You know, you're in the parlor area where the uncomfortable furniture was. And, you know, and you were... Everybody's supposed to be sitting up straight and kind of waiting, and then there was this time for this, and then a time for that, and then there was a, just a very sort of structured. Now everything is like open floor plan, everything spilling into everything else, no, no boundaries, that kind of thing. Now, uh, now sometimes people will say, "Well, this is all just as well that the, the, you know the the veil has been torn in two." The idea that being that, you know, the, the sanctuary or the temple, you know, the Holy of Holies, uh, which was, you know, place you didn't stumble into unless you wanted to die, right? I mean, that's pretty serious. Now, like maybe at, you know, Marla's grandfather's house with his, him and his grandmother, you know, her, him and his wife, you know, maybe you get a rap on the back of the hands, <laughs> you know, but you wouldn't be killed. But, you know, when you, but the Holy of Holies was this sacred space set apart. So sanctify means to set apart. That's what it literally means, to set apart. Say, this is a special place. You don't behave the way you normally do in other settings in this place. Now, some people say, well, aren't we all looking forward to the New Jerusalem, you know, where, you know, God dwells with his people? And there's no sort of uh, intermediary system that kind of, you know, keeps him apart from us. And we're, we're all just kind of together, you know, we dwell in his presence. 
So there is an, you know, this uh, anticipation of, of that. But we have this sort of time now where it's already but not yet. You've heard that term already but not yet. The idea that there are a number of things that in the gospel we enjoy now, but we don't have the fullness, you know, that the, the, the sort of the, we haven't gotten to the end of the story. So my, here's my interpretation of that for what it's worth. It means that there still are things that should be set apart, kind of special. You know, this is special time, special place, that kind of thing. And you kind of prepare yourself in ways that maybe you don't for, you know, just getting up and going about your, your work. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. It, it, didn't they refer to uh, first day of the week as the Lord's Day? Yep. You know, in other words, whose day is it? Yeah, well, we got into that last week. So, yeah, or, or last time, we were, that's a good thing to bring out. So, one of the things about this is it's the first day of the week. So, the Christian Sabbath is the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. And the reason that's the case is because it's the resurrection. You know, it's the day of the resurrection. So, the Lord's Day is when Christians worship. And it's the first day of a new day, kind of like... Sometimes referred to in some traditions as the eighth day. Um, but basically the idea, this is the first day of a new creation. So there's this alreadiness. Christ has risen, but we've not risen. Not yet. The already not yet dynamic. So I, sometimes I think we, you know, we're breathlessly anticipating the you know, final end of the story. Um, where you know we are in the presence of God and enjoy, you know in the New Jerusalem, and then there have been people who have actually tried to pull it off. If you're, you may have heard overrealized eschatology, have you ever heard that term overrealized eschatology? So an overrealized eschatology is an, an eschatology. Eschatology means the end, like the eschaton, the end of the world. An overrealized eschatology is you take all the promises about what life in the New Jerusalem is going to be like and you start living it now. This was the Shakers. You wonder why they didn't marry? Because Jesus said in the kingdom, right? So they said, they said well, we're there. And then now they're all gone. Because <laughs> we're not there. <laughs> we're still in need of uh, the old-fashioned way of like replenishing the earth, right? <laughs> so we're not there yet. But there have been people... Now, there are secular versions of real, over-realized eschatology. Have you ever heard the term, uh, don't amenitize the eschaton? It means, again, over-realized eschaton. So any, anything, any kind of utopian totalitarian state is that. They're trying to make the world perfect in their own sort of wisdom. They're turning according to their own scheme. So an ideology, an ideology is this sort of scheme of a perfect world, and you just sort of like, well, I don't care if you're ready for it. Here you go. We're just going to impress this upon you. If you're, if you're familiar with the, 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 Prometheus, uh, the, the bed of Procrustes, that story of the bed of Procrustes, a Procrustean bed. So there's this guy named Procrustes, right? Obviously Greek. <laughs> and he said, everyone must fit on my iron bed. He had an iron bed. So if you didn't fit, guess what? Well, if you're too short, we got a, we got a solution for that. The rack. It just stretch you out until you fit. 
And then if you're too big, guess what? We got a solution for that too. <laughs> we'll make you shorter. <laughs> and you just cut off, you know, you just cut off your feet or however much how much you need to fit. And and ideologies are like that. We have this world that just doesn't want to cooperate with our utopian scheme. Too bad for the world. Do we just impress it? So you end up with gulags and gas chambers and torture and all kinds of stuff. But anyway, what am I getting at? What I'm getting at is, is that uh, what I think the Westminster divines are telling us is that things have changed, but not as much as you think, or maybe you would think. We still have a Sabbath. It's still a special day. You don't behave the way you do on every other day. But it's a Christian Sabbath, which points us to the New Jerusalem about the end of the world, where we won't have a day set apart because every day will be in the presence of God. You, you see what I'm getting at? So we, this is the challenge for us. So like when somebody will say, you know, pull, you know, you know, Sabbath rest from Hebrews, you know, we have this Sabbath rest, and we say every day is the same. Well, hold on there, buddy. It's, it's, you know, there's still something, other, something to be said for the Ten Commandments, <laughs> right? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so when, when the church first started, they still had the Jewish custom of the Saturday being off and Sunday being the first day of the week for work. So the Christians actually still had to go to work on Sunday and then went to church Sunday night. So how are they not participating in labor on Sunday? when they actually have to, and on Saturdays, they're actually not allowed to because of the culture. Yeah, so that was an obviously a very challenging time in terms of the overlap of things. So many of those people, of course, were Jewish. So they, they, they believed that they still had certain obligations that they had to follow because they were under that covenant. And, you know, circumcision, etc. Uh, so that was one of those things. But then when we come to the to the Gentiles, you know, the rest of us, and before too long, we're vastly outnumbering them. Uh, one of the things that the, you know, the teaching about the, the, you know, fact that we no longer need to practice circumcision seems to also carry over into some other things. But there's still this, okay, the Lord's day is our day, and that's the day that, and so we don't actually have you know, there's no proof text to say Christians will worship on the Lord's Day, but we have these references to the Lord's Day in different places that that was the practice. So it's the practice from right from the start. But what's fallen away has been the Sabbath observance on the last day of the week. You already in the night, yeah. Yep. So at the risk of overestimating the escapon, if that's the way it's put. <coughs> I think the Sabbath day for the Christian, whether you work or you don't, you can set it apart. It should be, as Isaiah puts it, a delight. If you delight in the Sabbath, and also he says this, Isaiah, the same fellow, then their offspring will be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them, because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, and my soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And um, I feel like the resurrection 
is a is what we honor every Lord's Day. It's a, when the disciples came, they rejoiced. They were running. They're so excited. And so for the offspring, our offspring, and the parents ought to try to inculcate in our offspring the joy. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. So as opposed to being some stringent burden upon us, we have to rejoice in the day, the Lord's Day. I think that's why it was changed. It was the day of the resurrection of Christ. Now, getting to the to the point that you know how we go about celebrating the, the the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. You know, is it possible for us to make it as sort of burdensome as it had been, say, in the first century for for Jews who were uh, laboring under you know the, the old covenants? setting apart the, the last day of the week. So, you know, there are these kind of, uh, you know, pharisaical informants everywhere and police who are, like, patrolling, trying to make sure that no one is doing anything that is prohibited. And then Sabbath patrol. And we see Jesus uh, dealing with those guys in different places. Um, and that's where Jesus, you know, notes that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so there is a kind of, I had a really interesting conversation this week with Doug Wilson. He, he's going to be on the podcast. Uh, he, he is, it's just a couple of weeks out we're going to have. But he's got a, a book out called Chestertonian Calvinism. So if you know anything about Chesterton, you know, he's like this jolly, you know, larger than life, you know, brilliant writing, you know, writer and so forth. And, and um, one of the things that Doug notes, actually he's quoting C.S. Lewis. Uh, he said, uh, C.S. Lewis said, that when people look at the Puritans, uh, what they're looking at is, and criticizing when they say puritanical, is like generations three, four, and five. The very early Puritans were not anything like the caricature. They weren't like the people in the Scarlet Letter. They weren't like that at all. But they did get that way. No, the early Puritans, the, the, the first Puritans were actually, and this is what C.S. Lewis said, were known more for their spirit of like, let's have a great time. <laughs> Colorful clothing, you know. Uh, in fact, uh, who, was it? who was the character that he was talking about? I think he was talking about, oh, I'm just drawing a blank. Who, who wrote... Um, Mortification of sin. Owen, John Owen. So John Owen was actually looked more like a musketeer. He had this flamboyant clothing, all bright and everything, big hat, feather, <laughs> that kind of stuff. He wasn't like this, you know, austere, you know, sort of uptight, you know, only wear black kind of person. That came later. And so Doug's point is that, is, is that the Puritans aren't unique in this respect. He, he said, that happens every time. Every time. And then Doug went through Syrian monks. <laughs> it's, like, it's like everybody starts off great, and then everybody kind of crimps up and gets mean. <laughs> That's kind of the, the tendency, which is an interesting thing to think about, right? So, you know, sort of the, the joyfulness, the exuberance of the Christian Sabbath, that too can kind of get crimped, right? But... It's still supposed to be like a day set apart, right? So, how, any theories as to why we tend to get kind of cranky with time? 
Yeah, Mark. I, I, I don't know that I'm going to answer that question directly, <laughs> but throw maybe more questions out there or comments on it. And when you read about time and weeks, and you know the Jews lived under a lunar calendar. They lived under a 360-day calendar and a 365 and a quarter day year. I, make think, it I, I think back, <laughs> back to a time when there really was 360 days, which I believe was prior to the flood. Okay. But all that meaning you had feasts in there, and they had to make adjustments yeah. on what they called. So this was actually, if you will, a, a state issue of, of the, let's call it early church, the Old Testament church, to establish what day is the Sabbath and what day isn't, because it wasn't, oh, that, it wasn't that clean. It yeah. wasn't just like obvious that this is Saturday forever and ever and ever. It didn't right. work that way. You had to kind of readjust your list. Yeah, and so when you're actually looking at the readjustment that's necessary with the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and still keeping the the, the ordinance of um, maintaining a day of rest, and as Isaiah, a day that's a delight unto the Lord and delighting in what Christ did. This all just naturally makes sense as to why the church was meeting on the Lord's day. Oh yeah, I agree. Yeah, because in one sense, we're already saying that the the old creation is is passing away. So you know, the Sabbath rest is about the first creation, and now we have the new creation where we enter into the rest that doesn't end, right? And it's the first day of the week. Uh, there's, but even now, there's a little sloppiness I mean, in terms of how do we understand that. So, like, I guess what my point was when, when somebody mentions Hebrews and you're like, yeah, 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 I, I get it, but does that mean we don't have a day? Like, every day is the same. Uh, and, I, and I think that what the Westminster Divines are saying is, no, the Lord's Day is the day for us, but it's pointing to a future that hasn't arrived yet. So, yeah. Um, so when God gives us this spirit with something to do on Sunday, and, um, and we eventually take control of that and wreck it, so it's like the, in that movie, The Jesus Revolution, the, an uptight church kind of got loosened up a little bit, and then it got wrecked again. <laughs> we, we keep doing this thing because we keep wanting to institute our way over God's way. And I think we have to be aware of this. We have to walk God's way. We've got to quit meddling with stuff that's not, it's not broken. Well, that, that's true, but then you do get the... The, you know, the Sunday police, you know, like, you know, you, you remember, um, and, and, there, and you can have mixed feelings about this, because like when you look at, say, uh, Chariots of Fire, remember the film Chariots of Fire? Okay, the whole movie is built around uh, Eric Little's refusal to run on the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, right? And, um, you know, everybody's, you know, this is like a national issue. This is the Olympics. <laughs> this isn't just like some event. And then somebody comes to the rescue and bails them out who has, doesn't have this you know, sort of conscience issue, but he's still running on the <laughs> on Lord's Day, right? So uh, and early on in the film, if you, if you recall, they're in Scotland, and he's uh, coming out of church, and he sees a boy with a, with a soccer ball, you know, 
and the boy, he catches the ball and he says, son, you know, uh, Sabbath isn't for football, you know, something of that effect, if I remember correctly. And you're like, he's, this guy's a really likable guy, but at the same time, he's like, wow, that was kind of an inter-. He's scolding this. So there's all of this, this is challenging to kind of work through. Now, is it, is it possible to enjoy a very, I guess, maybe uh, carefully ordered series of things that you do, special dishes, special prayers, special... In other words, is that just burdensome? Or is there, is, can you develop a, a taste for it? Any thoughts? Yep. We went to churches where they would do Sabbath maybe once a month, or sometimes never. And we, sorry, community. Uh, we really enjoy that every week, mm-hmm. and it's it's an observance that it's every week. It's, yeah. it's, but it's, I, it's, and that's great. But I'm, I'm, what I'm getting at is is that sometimes we place like okay formality and informality, and so and we interpret it this way: formal a drag, not enjoyable. Informality, great time. I, that's often how we think, as, at least as Americans. And I'm, one, I'm just asking the question um, rhetorically. Is it possible to kind of have it have both? Kind of have, yeah. Um, I think the repeat, doing something repeatedly can instill meaning into something simply by its repetition. You learn more the more often we do it. You know, we're not good at something the first time. So if we never observe the Lord's day, we won't be good at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's so there's repetition to it. In terms of formality, one of the things I actually enjoyed about the army was how much ritual there actually was yeah. in it. Yeah. In ceremonies of command, you know, assumption of commands sure. or things like that. And all of the things in it had the symbols had meaning. Yeah. You know. And it was really cool to understand that and and so there was weight to those times yeah yeah that's a great point i you know i you've probably known guys who were like just total like uh, basket cases or druggies or whatever in in high school and then they go into the service and they are transformed they learn you know self-discipline uh and i've in some of my conversations with, with them, I'll say, when I put on that uniform, I began to think about myself differently. You know, it changed the way I understood myself. I, I kind of grew into the uniform. Did you ever see the, uh, the film? I'm not, again, this, don't, don't all run home and make this family movie night. <laughs> uh, officer and a Gentleman. That's, that's the kind of the subtext, Officer and a Gentleman. How's that? What's it? How is that? The subtext? Well, these guys are transformed, but through their. Oh, okay, you're right. Yeah. 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 Um, I just lived, having lived in Canada a long time, Armistice Day in Canada, which is Remembrance Day on November 11th, is so hardcore. When, while we were in the military, very much nothing was open. You went to it. We've been there in the rain, the ice, the sleet for hours standing and like just showing that reverence. And it's like sometimes I would think, well, we should 
why aren't we showing God more reverence than Remembrance Day? Yeah, I think I think this is a, there's the carryover. So my um, thought would actually be it worked the reverse. So what what uh, religion teaches, broadly speaking, around the world, is there are special times, special places, special clothes, special places to stand, special things to say, and then that ritual kind of works its way out into every other part of life, including the army, which is another, um, you know, institution that relies on things being set apart. So fraternizing with the troops, forbidden. Why? Any thoughts? So you know what I'm getting at. It's the officers are not supposed to make friends with the enlisted men. Why? They're set apart. Think about it, though. Why are they set apart, and what are they set apart to do? Accomplish the mission, and sometimes that requires sacrifice. That's right. So you don't want to be perceived as favoring certain men over other men who are enlisted. You have to be set apart to make these decisions, right? You're not going to favor some or, you know, that kind of thing. But obviously you were an officer. So how does that get uh, taught? In other words, is it just something that they say, don't do that, there's no explanation, or do they give you some background on that, Jonathan? It's both, really. Um, it's, it's taught, you know, by here's what the regulation says in, in black and white and what that means. Um, and then it's almost, it's almost catechized in, a, in, in an example, you know, in story as well of, of good and, and bad sort of examples. Um, and then often most officers who've been in more enough have have good stories of you know indeed close bonds and, and you know a brotherhood that's that's almost higher than friendship um, but still have to you know distinguish with how how not to uh, apply favor. So so there can be a genuine affection maybe that even develops between an officer and an enlisted man, uh, but there's a the distinction never goes away. This is something that you see it. You see it in a surprising way in uh, the Lord of the Rings with Frodo and Sam. Yeah. That even carries into their lives. What's that? Even into their families. Yeah. Their family is wholly set apart as officer and enlisted. You don't yeah. fraternize even as spouses. Right. Well, you might, but but you never. There's always a wall. Yeah. And there's a logic to it. It's not just an arbitrary thing. This is, is something that we know works, and if this is not practiced, problems follow. Thought, yeah, Gio. It seems like there's a escape uh, loophole uh, of the duties of necessity. So yeah. if everything, all this formalism becomes something that like makes it an obstruction to doing things that are necessary, like actually worshiping God in spirit and truth. Right. Like it becomes an obstruction and needs to be maybe upturned. Um, so, like wearing uh, a suit to dinner every night, if, you, if it makes it so that you can't ho- be hospitable to your poor neighbors, like you end up being like the rich man with Lazarus or um, 
I mean, he had the formalism of his prejudice, yeah. but it becomes an obstruction to doing charity, right. then it becomes sinful like in that way. So it seems like there's a uh, more fundamental law here that says you yeah. have to know what's ne- necessary. God doesn't need our worship. God doesn't need the formalism. Like, it's something that needs to be addressed with like, what's necessary for us in our duties to God. Not just there isn't a, like a, I don't know that God like requires formalism from us, but he does require worship and truth and um, yeah. so well so let me push back a little bit because I'm completely with you in spirit, but do we need formalism? I think we do. So, for example, uh, with my kids when they were growing up, um, we taught them to address uh, older people by Mr. or Mrs. or what have you. You know, this is something that you just do. And if uh, a, a person would come to us and say, oh, I'm just Bob, you know, Mr. Smith is my dad. And like, wait, I take him aside. Literally, I've done this. I say, no, you don't understand what we're doing here. I need you to go along with this. And the way that my son is going to address you is Mr. Smith. If you want to have a relationship with us, this is the way it's going to be. (laughs) Now, uh, there comes a point where you transition, and that's an awkward one. Do you remember when you started calling adults by their first name? How kind of awkward that was? It's like, have I gotten there yet? (laughs) Have I crossed the line? Is it okay now? You know, and... Usually what happens is, is, the, is the older person will say, just call me, whatever, you know, and then you're like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good now. But I, I think what happens is that we, we require formalism in order to inculcate respect and a kind of uh, appropriate regard to those who are benefactors. You know, there's a sense in which, like I told you about Judge Bob, didn't I? Maybe I didn't tell you about it. So I was on jury duty. I was on jury duty. And so nobody wants to be on jury duty. You know, you get something in the mail that says, if you don't show up, you're in big trouble and you're going to be fined. And, you know, so it's like, okay, I go down there. So I'm, this is Boston. You know, so how many people have been called up for jury duty? Hundreds. <laughs> Place is packed. Every, nobody wants to be there, right? And Judge Bob comes in. I think he watched Night Court too much or something. He's got some, you know, Converse sneakers on underneath his robe. You know, you can tell that he's Mr. Mr. And he's getting up and he gets up, you know, to address us. And the, the room is lined with guys with guns, right? I mean, these, the, there are p- police officers everywhere who are intended to maintain order and, get, and make sure we do the things that we're supposed to do when we're supposed to do them, which in one of those things is, all rise. And then Judge Bob comes in and says, hey, everybody, take it easy. <laughs> Literally, have a seat. You know, and then he gives us this spiel about, you know, being just a regular guy. And I'm thinking, everything about this room, Judge Bob, everything about this day, everything about those guys standing on the side with the guns, everything about just, we just had to get up when you walked in, says you're not just like me. You've been set apart. And you have decisions to make that will change people's lives. (laughs) Some for the better, some for the worse, right? So if you're just Bob, I might just say when you say uh, guilty, 
off to jail. Too bad, Bob. <laughs> I, I don't have to do what you say. You're just Bob. No, he's invested with the authority of the state, which is something that comes from God. Right. So there are appropriate formalities that we... Uh, the problem is in our society is, is we don't talk about them anymore. No, nobody explains them. Yeah. I think a good example is, too, is the parable where the guests are invited to the wedding feast and they do not come. Yeah. So he goes out to the highways and byways and he finds all the people who would not normally be invited to such a formal affair. Right. And they show up in mass and he finds this guy who's come in and he's not wearing wedding garments. Yeah, right. He had the gall to come without wearing wedding garments. Right, right. Now we know what you know we can talk about what that means spiritually, but the parable doesn't stand unless there's an inappropriateness that Christ is pointing to that a king would invite people to his wedding feast, and somebody has the gall to show up in, in just regular clothes. Did it and they throw him out. Yeah. So, so I, there's, I mean, that's a clear example of yeah. Christ endorsing formality. Well, and, and we see it in, just in all kinds of places and unexpected places. So I knew a guy named Rod who was a jazz musician. He went to our church. He was a student at Berkeley School of Music, which is you know, a pretty elite school on the East Coast. In Boston, you can either be at Berkeley, or at Berkeley School of Music or at New England. Uh, what's, what is it? Uh, Conservatory, New England Conservatory. So, so my sister-in-law went to New England Conservatory, but I knew a lot of people who were at Berkeley. And he was, like, this was like his big break. He was uh, going to play for a, an event that uh, was featuring Buddy Rich. I don't know if you remember Buddy Rich, but Buddy Rich was a drummer, uh, you know, and he was kind of a big deal. And so everybody shows up, uh, black tie. Buddy Rich's black tie, everybody's black tie. Rod shows up in a white suit. He walks in and Buddy Rich is just looking at him like he's gonna kill him. That was the end of Rod's music career. About a year later, he was living on the streets, completely you know, addicted to drugs, ended up dying young. It's a sad, sad story, it's kind of pitiful, but just that one slip ruined his career because he wasn't wearing the right stuff. He didn't get the memo. Literally, he just didn't get the memo. <laughs> it was black tie. So, I mean, if you think about jazz musicians, aren't they all supposed to be like loosey-goosey, no big deal? Shouldn't Buddy Rich have just said, hey, good for you. You're, <laughs> you're standing up and standing out. <laughs> no, he's like, you're done. Anyway, so, you know, I think formality has a way of, of sending some... Now, here's another way to think about it. So let's say um, somebody very important comes around, maybe, you know, I, I'll stay, stay away from politicians because we all have mixed feelings about whoever I'd say. But let's say, you know, a, a self-made... Let's say uh, um, who's the guy who owns Berkshire Hathaway... Warren Buffett. Let's say Warren Buffett came into church and just walked right up to you and said, Hey, Tom, good to see you. Well, 
That would be flattering. Why? Because he's distinguished. It's because he has something going for him that the rest of us don't, that him condescending and treating you in a certain way that's familiar would be a flattering thing. Now, if you did the reverse, hey, Warren! Now, maybe he's the sort of guy who would take it well. My guess is he probably would, probably laugh, whatever. But there's, there's something presumptuous about that, right? Anyway, and, and by the way, uh, if you touch the ark, it doesn't matter what your motives were. <laughs> You're dead. So anyway, there are these standards that are just there, and you've got to have to kind of deal with them, and they frame everything else. Um, anyway, so the setting apart of a day, it's a special day, but again, like Geo says, there are you know, the works of mercy, the things that have to be done. Some people have to patrol the streets as policemen. Somebody has to work in the hospital as the nurse. Somebody has to do certain things. You drive it down the street and somebody's car is broken down. You don't say, oh, Sabbath day, can't help. No, you, you do it. You, you, know, you do th- that kind of stuff. Anyway, other thoughts? Well, let's talk about uh, chapter 22 now, lawful oaths and vows. Now, here's another thing. Now we're getting into some real formality here. This is another formal thing. Lawful oaths and vows. Uh, a, a lawful oath is part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. So what we're doing is we're calling upon God in an oath to be a witness and to judge us if we don't fulfill the oath. Now, this is, I think, it's something that's worth distinguishing from a vow because we get into vows a little later. Vows are promises, promise to do a certain thing, but there's no, like, you know, sort of threat of judgment hanging over your head. You know, it's, it's a matter of integrity. It's, an, it's a matter of, you know, you're still accountable when you make a promise, but it's, it's not the same thing because you're not calling God to judge you if you fail to keep your vow. Does that make sense in terms of distinguishing vows and oaths? Um, any thoughts on this? Now, there are some, you know, Christian traditions that refuse to swear oaths. Can you think of why that's the case? Because they might not keep it. Well, there's, there's, it's prudent. Solomon says it would be better not to vow than to vow and not keep it. Yep, there's that. But there's also the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so there's a, a passage, if you remember, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, so uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard it said that uh, uh, by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself. Uh, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say to you, unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is God's footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou cannot make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these 
cometh of evil. Okay. Yeah. Was he talking about the kind of tricky Pharisee kind of oaths about different, you know, this is Torben? Yeah. Yeah. Almost like there are different sorts of levels of, of oath, depending on what you're swearing, you know, calling to, and to hold you account. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's part of the story. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Can you give a few examples of each oath and vow so I can have more of a clear picture of the differences between, between oaths and vows? So uh, when a person says, you know, I swear uh, in the name of God to uh, perform the functions of this office, and if I don't, may he punish me or strike me dead or something like that. All right. So there's some implications. A vow would be sort of more of an open-ended promise. Like when we bring someone in front of the church, you know, will you keep these vows? Do you promise this, promise that? So there's, there's not that sort of impending threat. So an oath is bringing God's name into it, a vow does not? Well, yeah, that would be, I think, an example of it, yeah, because you're calling upon God to be the witness and the judge. Yep, Gio. So it's talking about lawful oaths as part of religious worship. What does that mean practically? Like I can imagine like motivations or something not being part yeah. of that side. Yeah, definitely. With other things fall into that category. That talking about. Yeah, I think um, ecclesial offices would be definitely a place where that applies. Um, I think, though, again, we're kind of we have carryover from uh, of this into civic affairs. So, like in a court, you swear to tell the truth. So help me God, you know, as part of that, the the you know just normal practice of justice or calling, you know, for witnesses, um, and that's a carryover from a time in which uh, the relationship between the church and the state in the West was much closer than it is today. But we still practice that. So we're, it's, it's a religious dimension to even our administration of justice in the civil courts today. Yep. Well, in James, it has a similar uh, passage about, you know, um, let you yes, be yes, and no, be no, otherwise you might fall into condemnation. Yeah. Uh, and it does seem they're both talking about the fact that it's something that you're trying to, you're going to be working on achieving, and you don't have control over the future right. the situation. Right. So, like, I promise um, to do this and this and that. But when we're talking about, like, moral promises, I feel like maybe there's a distinction there. So when you're saying, I like I swear essentially not to lie, well, that's a moral thing that you um, have very specific, like, things are not going to get in your way to tell the truth. Yeah, the truth. yeah that's a good when point. When you're promising to, you know, be faithful to uh, your, your spouse that you're marrying, right. that's a moral decision. Not like things are going to get in your way and you're going to accidentally yeah. shut yeah. down the road of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think, too, that another thing here is um, when we're thinking about uh, these oaths and vows that are being um, endorsed and, and um, explained, we're talking about the 
the oaths and vows that are needed for the institutions to function. So when you were a kid at the playground, you know, and you wanted somebody to believe you, what would you do? You'd swear, calling, you know, everything you could possibly get to, I was I'm totally honest, I swear, you know, and then you'd name, you know, God and all of that, you know, because it, it's, it's, it's more or less you're initiating this, trying to make what you have to say more believable than maybe it deserves to be believed, <laughs> right? Uh, so if you're using um, the Lord's name in that way, you are calling him to hold you accountable, and he will. That's the, the idea. You know, taking the, the, the Lord's name in vain, I think that's what we're, what we're getting at here, using his authority and credibility as leverage to get what you want, even though you may not be very trustworthy yourself. So, you know, the, the call to let your yes be yes and your no be no, it just means to be a straight shooter, you know, be a kind of person that just says things the way they are all the time, and you don't have to, like, use leverage to get people to, to, to accept what you're talking about. Yep. Well, not using God as a leverage. The Bible is very clear that if you use God's name, you do it wrong. You pay that price. Yeah. Yep. That's that's what the command is for. So, I think you know when we. I think often when we think about taking the names, the name of the Lord in vain, we're thinking about someone in a fit of anger saying something that calls God's name into the curse or whatever. And I think that's part of it. But I think the larger uh, sort of framework for thinking about it is I'm trying to use God to get my way. Well, isn't there a story about a man that ended up having to sacrifice his daughter? Oh, yeah. yeah. That was used in a wrong way. Definitely. <laughs> As an example. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So I think of a couple of O's and vows that we take common day life. One is, uh, which I really rejoice in, is a church when people take vows of membership. Yeah. There's one place in the church. The other is marriage. Yeah. And, we, and we call God and others to witness. And so we, we do this, and it's not using God's name. It's reverencing to say, as God is my witness, I will do this thing. Better, and this is where Solomon comes in, it'd be better not to vow than to make that vow. Like you're, t- you're taking vows up in front of everybody at church. You go, Yeah, I'm going to follow the, the worship and discipline of the church. Maybe you just mean the worship and not the discipline. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we usually, in my, the classes I lead, spend a little bit of time on that part. <laughs> so I think it's back to the reverence of this. The formalization of things is important to to be formal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to to solemnize uh, to, is to acknowledge the significance, the importance, the uh, really the centrality of a particular institution or practice like marriage to our life, um, and to bring it before God for His uh, oversight, judgment, right giving it meaning. Yep, dialogue. And I noticed there's a correlation when people start using substitute words instead mm-hmm. of yeah. you know, 
directly. Yeah. There's a correlation in other things they're doing. That reverence isn't there. Yeah. They get they hurt themselves. They say a word to substitute. You know, yeah. the Lord's name is vain. Right. But you see other things that you know following that. So. You know, I'm not quick to point it out, but yeah. if I have to be with that person on a regular basis, I point it out. I say, you know, you're not doing anything different than the person you're, right, you're right. condemning over there that says it out. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Yeah, I remember one time my uh, Marla's grandfather took me to task on that very, very thing. <laughs> years and years ago. It was at a family gathering <laughs> at your, your, your other grandmother's house. <laughs> but it, it made an impression on me. I was like, hmm. yeah. In terms of oaths and vows, is there? You think there's a uh, kind of a historical correlation between contracts and a what was um, just a more verbal culture in the past? I mean, because we sign yeah. documents. Yeah. that say awful things about what's going to happen to us and we do it in our life you know, fairly regularly yeah. um, and yet there's kind of this idea that um, I, can be, I can be a child of God and I'm not going to be disciplined as a son yeah. if I'm do doing something that I really ought to be doing you know it, and as though I, there's things I should make an oath or a vow to, right. and it's appropriate for me to do so in in his economy. Yeah. And if I, by doing so, I formalize what it is I am supposed to be doing, mm -hmm. and then and have witnesses of that and so forth. And I, I think there's a couple questions there, but I just wonder if the contract thing has kind of taken the place of. Oh, yeah, I, think it's, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, I think uh, Joseph's class last week was very good in that re regard as he talked about the elders at the gates and the sandal and all of that, uh, what it meant, you know, just wasn't some sort of goofy, you know, sort of uh, purposeless ritual. There was, it made sense <laughs> that you use your sandal at this point. Um, but then, you know, calling in the witness, you heard me, you know, you heard him, you know, everybody's, you know, um, Supposed to make the verbal, you know, acknowledgement at that point. Um, so our memories in a world like that, your memory is huge in terms of its significance. Having to remember certain things. Yeah, Christopher. I'm building on that. I think the connection to worship in oaths is based on the idea that we are acknowledging and reminding others that God is the judge of yeah. our words. Right. And in the second paragraph where it says that the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, it's, you know, it would be idolatry to swear by any other created thing as if that thing is the judge right. of our words and our actions. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, um, the difference between like oaths and vows and saying your yes is a yes and your no is a no, I think the yes and yet is... It's our own honesty. And if we, I think God wants his people to be honest. So if we do what we say we do and don't do, and we, and we say all that, then eventually people get to know you. And when somebody slanders you, they'll be the ones to defend you. 
other people defend you. Say they're not that. They don't do that. Well, I think too that you know, you know, as Lisa brought out, the passage in James has to do with business dealings. I think uh, when it comes to business dealings, everything can get pretty shady fast, <laughs> you know. And so to call in God as a sort of an endorsement uh, is something that you know is a thing that you shouldn't. Uh, be prone to do, um, you know, the idea of just being straightforward, honest, having integrity, yes, yes, no, no. Here, I'll tell you what, when I get a, when I, this is, maybe this is something that other people wouldn't agree with, but when I get a card with an ichthus on it, I'm like, watch out. A business card with an ichthus on it, a f- the fish. I don't say, oh boy, I can trust this person completely. I think, no, this person is trying to leverage the Christian faith to imply that he's trustworthy. That's, that's, how, that's how I've I tended to, and because I've been taken advantage of by some of those Ixthus people. <laughs> anyway, just kind of a cautionary tale, and I've known many Christian businessmen who's, who've confirmed that. <laughs> some of the people that love to play the Christian card the sort of loudest or most visibly are the people you got to watch out because they can be on the make. I'm not saying it's always the case. I'm just saying that's been my experience. Well, no, no one that drives a car that has it on the back every day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, we should probably wrap it up. Uh, we'll, we'll go back uh, to chapter 22 next week. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, this has been a challenging discussion. We're trying to uh, exercise wisdom in this matter of, of, of honoring your word, uh, being obedient, recognizing that sometimes things pull us in different directions. Uh, we want, Lord, to, to be merciful uh, and open and gracious and friendly. And at the same time, we want to be respectful and uh, not presumptuous and um, make sure we want to make sure that we do things in the right way. So help us, Lord, to keep all of these things in mind and give us, as I said, wisdom as we endeavor to serve you and, and our neighbor. In Christ's name, amen.